News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. How is the federal budget going to impact you? That is the big question for all of us after Finance Minister Christopher Freeland presented the budget yesterday. So let's break it all down with the help of our Global National Chief Political Correspondent, David Aiken. Good morning, David. Morning, Simi. Yeah, lots of lots of numbers to crunch. Yeah. Lots of programs. Big focus on housing yesterday. Let's talk about that. Let's start with housing then. So what does this do for Canadians who can't afford to get into the market? Because I know so many people in that state. Yeah, and you know what? It's not just you know big communities like Vancouver, the Lower Mainland. It's it's communities of all sizes across the country where housing prices are now you know out of reach of a lot of people, particularly for first time buyers. And so the government's really taken two approaches. The first is we need more homes. I mean that's one of the problems here. Demand is outstripping supply. We need to boost the supply. And so the government has committed to doubling the number of new homes built in this this country every year, from two hundred thousand to 400,000 and it's going to do that by uh, spending this year just under 2 billion dollars. So that's that's for new home construction. Money might might go to municipalities, it might go to other organizations to help the building process. So doubling the number of new homes built each year and and the reaction to that has been, well that's a good start, it's a down payment, but you know the CMHC says we have a gap right now of 1.5 million homes. That's that's the number of homes we need built now. We're going to start maybe seeing if we can build a, a few hundred thousand. So that's the one aspect. Then on the other side is, is there some things the government can do to help first-time home buyers out, maybe make it a little more affordable, subsidize them a bit? And yes, there's a couple of programs. The first is a new kind of savings account. You, you, many people know about that tax-free savings right. account, the TIFSA. Well, now there's a first-time home savings account. And this one... Yeah, you can contribute a maximum of eight thousand dollars a year, lifetime maximum contributions of forty thousand, and when the money goes in, it's tax free. So just like an RSP, if you'd put that eight thousand in, you get to shield that from any tax in a given year, and then when it comes out, it's also tax free, and that's like the TIFSA. When it com- goes in, tax free, comes out tax free. So you know, talk to your financial advisor. But a lot of people think, okay, that is th- that could be potentially beneficial. Of course, you need the money to be able to save it. But right. we'll leave that for another day. Um, <laughs> so that's one thing. That, uh, but that won't be in place for probably next year. What's going to go in place immediately is the doubling of the first-time homebuyer's tax credit. So this was $5,000. It's going to go up to $10,000. And anybody who bought a home since the beginning of the year, since January 1st, a, a, a new home, a first-time home, uh, can qualify for that credit. And then for those who are what the government calls housing affordability challenged, um, where you know, you're spending a lot of your, your, your disposable income on, on the rent or, or housing, there's going to be a one-time payment coming out this year of $500. Don't know if that'll help, but it's better than nothing. Details aren't uh, available yet. We don't know about eligibility. We don't know when it will be paid. But sometime this year, the government's going to send a check of 500 bucks to most lower-income, middle-income homes in the country. Okay, and can we also talk a bit about military spending here, too? Uh, does this? I know there was a boost in the budget for that, though, but how much closer does it bring to that NATO benchmark? It, it not really very close at all, and and I think some people are a little disappointed at that because I thought we'd you know the government had sort of telegraphed that we were going to do more. We've seen lots of European countries, most notably Germany, say right we got to get to two percent and do it too sweet. Uh, we're not doing that. We spend one point four, just under one point four percent of our GDP on defense, 
and we're going to spend an extra, I don't know, billion and a half this year. Uh, plan is to spend an extra eight billion over the next five years, but that might get us to 1.5 percent. So from 1.4 now to 1.5, it not not really a whole lot, and we really don't have a lot of details on what some of that money will be spent on in the years going out. We do know that right now of the spending we're going to do this year, that that billion and a half, half of it or the half a bit half a billion, 500 million dollars is going to be used to buy weapons for Ukraine. So that can buy that can buy some weapons. So mm-hmm. we're going to take five hundred million dollars and and uh, and arm the Ukrainians. Uh, and that and then there's other some other spending on cybersecurity and things like that. But I think uh, a lot of defense analysts were, were we were talking to yesterday saying it's uh, it's not really a, a major defense investment at this point in time. Okay, what about gas prices, David? Too because that's been an issue right across the country. And listen, no more so than right here in Metro Vancouver, highest prices in the country. Any relief there? It, no, not really. And this was something, when, when we polled Canadians last week, we, we did a poll with our friend Ipsos, and we asked Canadians, you know, what's the number one thing the budget should deal with? Affordability, cost of living, inflation. Now, sure, the government's taken some steps on housing, but, you know, there's, uh, I know there's not a federal carbon tax in B.C., but there isn't any breaks on carbon taxes throughout the country, and um, no rebates, and really no, no, no breaks in uh, tax rates at all. Same thing, no relief for high grocery prices. If there was anything the government did, it, it said it's going to improve the supply chain. And we know that one of the reasons we're having inflation right now is because there's been bottlenecks in our supply chain. Mm-hmm. So there is money to improve ports, for example, the Port of Vancouver, rail lines, road networks. But that's sort of medium-term stuff that's not really going to provide immediate relief. So uh, that's one of the things I think the government's going to take it on the chin for in the House. I know the Conservatives and the New Democrats will be doing that, saying, you know, one of the things that people were looking for was some some sort of relief from these rapid spikes in gas prices, grocery prices, and uh, really wasn't much there in the budget for them. All right, well, thanks for summing it up for us this morning. No problem. Cheers. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there was a lot for Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Krista Freeland to consider in shaping the latest federal budget. It was brought down yesterday from affordable housing to dental care, climate change, the defense budget and more. The budget is spending billions and billions of dollars. So what went into it? What went into those decisions? Joining us now is Krista Freeland to talk more about that. Thank you for being here. It is great to be with you, Simi. And I just heard, I listened to the commercials before coming on, and I heard that commercial for Surrey Strong and people talking about how hard they worked to get through the pandemic. And so I would just like to start by saying thank you to everybody and sharing some great new numbers on jobs in Canada that came out this morning. Canada added 73,000 new jobs in March, and that has brought the unemployment rate in Canada down to 5.3%. That is the lowest rate we have had since we began gathering comparable numbers in 1976. And after what everyone has been through, what I heard those people talking about, Surrey Strong talking about, it is a remarkable recovery. And I just want to say thank you very much to everyone who got through it. Well, let me ask you, what were your priorities going into this budget? What were the things that you wanted to emphasize? I wanted to emphasize housing. I wanted to emphasize economic growth. And I wanted to emphasize fiscal responsibility. And why not, okay, that fiscal responsibility then, do you feel enough of that was tackled in this budget? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we made some crucial investments that Canadians need in growth, in affordability. But at the same time, I was very clear that those emergency COVID programs, which were really necessary and have done great things like driven this remarkable jobs recovery, they also cost a lot of money. And so one of the things that I needed to do yesterday was to say that period of emergency COVID support is over. Those programs are turned off and we are charting a responsible course. We have a falling debt to GDP ratio. We have falling deficits. And actually, we now have the lowest debt-to-GDP ratio and the lowest deficits in the G7. So Canadians, I know Canadians are concerned. Canadians want to be confident that the federal government is careful with their money. And I just want to say to your listeners, I agree that we need to be. And that was one of the priorities in the budget. We've heard from some business groups, though, that they wish there had been more spending on uh, you know, increasing productivity, encouraging more uh, growth, encouraging more business investment. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, that was a real priority for me in the budget. And there are some important measures doing exactly that. You know, let me start with small businesses. Uh, we have a considerable tax benefit for small businesses, making it easier for small businesses who currently enjoy that low 9% tax rate to grow without suddenly finding that their taxes jump. So important support to help small businesses grow and some really important steps precisely on productivity and innovation. We're going to launch an innovation agency to help businesses get that little bit better, that little bit more effective. And, you know, I know people in BC really care about the planet. They care about climate action, and they are right to care. And that's why I think they should be really happy about our Canada Growth Fund, which is going to put $15 billion government dollars in a fund where we're going to attract $3 of private capital for every federal dollar to invest in the green transition. And that's something we need to save the planet. And it's something we need to do to be sure that we are building the green economy, which is where the world is going. Uh, Can we talk a little bit about military spending here too? There was an increase in this budget. And I was wondering, did your, your thinking on that change? Did you think, okay, we need to invest more here because of what is happening in Ukraine? Absolutely. You know, when uh, Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, he also attacked all of the world's democracies. He attacked the rules-based international order that all the world's democracies depend on, particularly a middle power like Canada. And, you know, we have to be really clear that Russia is today a threat to the whole world. I mean, talk to the people in Syria about the terrible damage Russia has done there. Talk to the people in Mali about what Russian mercenaries are doing there. And so absolutely, he really crossed a line with the invasion of Ukraine. We're seeing atrocities committed there. And that does mean that Canada has to be very thoughtful about the role we are playing in global security and in our own defense. But it still doesn't bring us up to the amount of spending that NATO would like to see us spend. That's right. And, you know, what 
we did in this budget is, first of all, provide money to counter the immediate threat. That is Vladimir Putin. And frankly, Canada and Canadians are incredibly fortunate that the people of Ukraine are fighting that fight for us. But they need weapons to win that war. That's what they've been saying to us. And so in the budget, we allocated $500 million to buy weapons right now for Ukraine. And that is about Canada's security, because those weapons will be used by Ukrainians to defeat Putin, which is what we need to have happen. We also overall increased our defense spending by $8 billion dollars a lot of money, particularly in this fiscally responsible budget. And then we did a third thing, which is we have said to the Department of Defense, we want them to urgently look at Canada's defense posture, to urgently look at what is it we need to do in this new environment. Because I really believe if we're going to put significant money down in a budget, We need to have a plan for how we're going to spend it and why. And that's the third step. Did you consider help on the fuel tax issue as Canadians right across the country are dealing with pretty sky-high gas prices and really nowhere higher than here in Metro Vancouver? Well, actually, one thing that we're doing in the budget concretely to help Canadians with the price of fuel is fighting Vladimir Putin. A reason that our prices are skyrocketing right now is Russia's invasion in Ukraine. So, you know, it might seem to people, how is all this connected to my life? It is directly connected, and the price people are paying at the pump is directly attributable to that war. Having said that, there are other meaningful measures in the budget to help people with affordability right now. One of them is the $500 top-up to the Canada Housing Benefit, That's going to help a lot of Canada's most vulnerable people today. Well, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Okay, Simi. Really, really good to talk to you and have a great Friday. Have a great weekend. You too. That's Krista Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance, talking about the budget priorities, choices that were made, things that were not. Uh, if you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. Uh, lots of housing affordability issues, of course, here in Metro Vancouver. And we're going to break down more about what the budget had in terms of housing uh, coming up a little bit later. There is, of course, that proposed the two-year ban on any foreign buyer's purchasing real estate in Canada. We're going to break that issue down for you a little bit more uh, later on the show. This is Mornings with Simi. One of my favorite movies about Newfoundland is called The Grand Seduction. This is from back in 2013. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Or actually, I would say maybe you should wait because it turns out it is being turned into a musical. And one of the people who is helping out with that, co-writer of that musical, who's also going to be performing in this, is actually our next guest. It is Alan Doyle, a lead singer of Great Big C. And of course, he has so many great solo albums as well. And writer, of course. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me on. What a fun time. It does sound like a fun time. So how did this come about? Why make a musical out of a, a screenplay? Well, Adam Brazier, who's the creative director for the Charlottetown Festival, saw the film uh, Grand Seduction, and like yourself, we all fell in love with that movie, and uh, decided uh, that it would probably make for a great stage play because it has 
you know, hijinks and it has deception and it has, you it know, does. spins con and all that stuff. And and so uh, they set about the developing a, a stage musical for it and they contacted me three, four years ago now about writing songs for it. And so I set about writing songs and then became so, you know, enamored with the whole project that I ended up uh, wanting to play the lead role of Frank, uh, who's the head conjurer of Telltale Harbor. But, you know, the story is just like it is in the film. There's a Atlantic Canadian town that has lost its fishing plant and uh, they're in the running for a replacement plant uh, that will save the town's future. But they have one significant hurdle that they need to jump over in order to qualify for that replacement plant. And that is, of course, to have a full-time resident doctor. And, of course, uh, doctors are hard to come by in small places. So they have a very short period of time to convince a visiting doctor that Telltale Harbor is exactly where he should spend the rest of his life. Oh, God, so funny. I love that. So what was it like for you then the last couple of years, Alan, getting together, writing the music for this? I mean, during the pandemic, did that make it easier to work on this or was it harder? It actually was a great blessing (laughs) for the development of the musical because myself and Adam and Bob Foster, who's the music director, uh, you know, who usually does come from away and a few other uh, productions in Toronto, and Ed Rich, um, uh, the head book writer, where all of us had time because our various projects got shut down. So, you know, we remotely developed this project really, and during the pandemic, it's a without the pandemic, I'm not sure we'd be exactly where we are right now with this project. So, blessing in the skies, probably. It sure sounds like it. You mentioned Come From Away there, too, which I also love. There's something right now, I feel yeah. like, about the magic of Newfoundland that both of these projects seem to capture, don't they? Yeah, it, you know, I think one of the cool things that Come From Away did was, and maybe the once as well, perhaps, is just showed the world that uh, these kind of stage musicals can easily wrap around you know, Celtic and, and East Coast traditional music as much as they can around operatic music or rock and roll or pop or whatever. You know, so it, it's just um, I'm grateful to those productions for kind of paving the way for folk music and musicals. Now, you're going to be starring in this. This is a little bit different than performing on stage in a band. How do you feel about that? <laughs> uh, it's only terrified. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, hourly. Uh it, it is, and I'm, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm not one bit ashamed to say it. It's, it's terrifying, you know, and it's exciting, and it's, uh, it's exactly what good performance art should be, you know. Um, uh, I got to learn a whole bunch of new stuff, and I'm surrounded by some very, very, very skilled and talented people, and uh, I'm delighted to be amongst them to learn this new way to, to give people a great night out. You know, there's lots of great gags, there's great songs and singing, and, and there's a really, really heartfelt Atlantic Canadian message of, you know, trying to do anything, pull out all the stops to save the most important things to Atlantic Canadians, you know, home and family. Do you feel people are ready for that great night out? I feel like we got the exact thing that, we got the exact medicine that the world wants right now. <laughs> So how uh, how is this going to be performed then, and where can people see this? Like it, it, right now, it sounds like it's going to be on a pretty you know limited stage there. But this sounds like something a lot of people would like to see, Alan. Well, that'd be a great problem to have, I'll tell you. Right now, it's running from uh, uh, the towards the end of June till uh, September here at the storied Charlottetown Festival in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, and uh, you know we're encouraging people to come out to Charlottetown for the summer and check. Come east. 
come to Newfoundland for come a home year. Come to Charlottetown for the Charlottetown Festival. It'll be, uh, you know, it'll be a great time. I think domestic travel is, is going to be up this summer because, you know, people are finally going to get to get out and then maybe they want to stay closer to home than they normally would. So looking forward to people coming to uh, Atlantic Canada uh, for the summer. Okay, listen, I got to tell you, I'm actually coming to Atlantic Canada for the summer. I'm in Newfoundland yeah. in August. Um, and yeah. it's going to be a great time. My husband's from Newfoundland, so we're going to have a wonderful, it is a come home year. One of those, and I know yeah, how I'm big go- that is. Well, like, you know, no one knows this yet, but I, I, I have a gig that I'm, a concert that I'm playing in, uh, in, uh, in St. John's in August. So keep, keep your eyes and ears open. It'll be a great night out there too. I guarantee it. I will be doing that for sure. You don't know how excited I just am to hear that. What is it, do you think, Alan, about Atlantic Canada, uh, maybe in particular Newfoundland, for me anyway, that makes it such yeah. a special place? Because it's different. And, you know, it's a, you know, Newfoundland is a different place, you know. And, I mean, up until very recently, in historical terms, it was a different place. But, you know, you know, my mom and dad weren't born in Canada. They were born in a republic, you know, or, a, you know, a dominion called Newfoundland. And we joined Canada, you know, in my parents' lifetime, you know. And so it, it, it has its own thing. It has its own music. It has its own culture. It has its own, uh, you know, food and, and, and economy. And, and and so it's, yeah, it, it's, it is a different place. And it, it, uh, it, I think for most Canadians, because of just how geographically separated it is from the rest of the country, that it's an exotic uh, location that you can travel within your own country, and most countries don't have that. That is so true. Uh, listen, best of luck. I think you'll be great, and I hope to see this show one day. But uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about housing affordability. Obviously, this was a big issue heading into the federal budget yesterday. And now that we've seen it, we wonder, well, the measures that are in there, is that going to be enough to actually help somebody afford to buy a home in this country? We are at our worst when it comes to affordability issues here. One of the things that was proposed was a two-year ban on foreign buyers. Now, is that something that's going to work, do you think? Let's break it all down now. Joining us is Thomas Davidoff from the UBC Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate. Thanks for being back with us. Oh, my pleasure. How are you? I am good, thank you. So you've had some time to look at this and go over it. What's your assessment of the affordability, the housing issues in the budget? Well, uh, there's three facets, I guess, that I'm aware of that have been uh, you know, discussed broadly. One is the foreign buyer ban. You know, maybe there's some markets where that'll make a difference. Uh, Here in D.C., I think very little. We've already got the foreign buyer tax and speculation tax. So I think that issue has largely been addressed. I would be very surprised if that made a significant difference here. Uh, You know, maybe some markets in Canada. Step two, we've got additional savings for down payments. Uh, You know, you you get very tax-favored treatment up to uh, 40K. That helps. I think it'll mostly help affluent people who would have been able to buy a home anyway. I think some marginal buyers get a benefit, uh, but you know that that savings on top of existing savings programs, I think, would probably mostly help uh, people who are already able to buy a home. Uh, and then we have uh, public funding for uh, nonprofit or social housing. It's a significant commitment. Uh, it's it's not going to bring broad affordability to the middle class, but I imagine it will help uh, you know a number of families in need. 
One of the things I was wondering about is we've talked about that beneficial ownership registry. We're working on it here in BC and they said they were going to do it nationwide, but they haven't really done that. Do you think that would help? Uh, yeah, I, I, it, it could help. Absolutely. And I, you know, they're talking about taxing capital gains on flips, which is certainly a good thing. It'll make some revenue, might, might soften prices a little. I think generally transparency is a good thing. I'm sure there are people hiding money in our real estate and it can't hurt. You know, again, I don't think that brings us to broad affordability, but you know, why not take a sensible step? Yeah, you mentioned a a little loophole there that I'm sure you're right. I think people are taking advantage of, and that is claiming a home as your principal residence, but selling it within 12 months of buying it, not having to pay the taxes on that. So this this closes that loophole. That's right. That's right. So you know, to the extent prices have been run up by by flippers, that 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 absolutely helps. You know, again, I don't think that's. I think the flippers are there because of the opportunity. I don't think the opportunity is there because of the flippers. Right. What could what could we have done, though? Like, was this a lost opportunity? What would you like to have seen to really make a difference? Well, this was significant. They're, they're, they're spending some money, so I don't want to poo-poo that. I mean, the big one for me, of course, that's free, is the federal government should tell every premier who comes to town to ask for money, you know, get lost until you fix your land use problems. You know, something like 70, 80 percent of residential land, I'm guessing, in Canada uh, has to be a detached single-family home. So if you can only afford a townhome or an apartment, you're not allowed to live on something like, you know, certainly a majority of residential land. And, and that, that helps people who can buy single-family homes get lower prices, uh, but it hurts the very people who struggle to get into ownership. So that would have been a freebie. And I, I think there's a growing consensus. I think that'll probably happen in the next few years. Uh, would have been great to see it this year. Right. Is that kind of the method, the, the things that the steps that BC has been taking in the last couple of weeks? Uh, well, that hopefully they'll take further steps. Uh, yeah. David Eby has, of course, sort of mentioned that this is coming, and I hope it does come soon here in BC. Right. But overall, though, is somebody, you know, looking at this federal budget, can you say that, oh, you know, with that special savings account, the other things that they set up, is there a chance here for somebody to say, hey, this is going to help me buy a home? Absolutely. There are people who this extra, you know, tax-free savings, you know, a few years down the road, you you know, you'll be in a better position than you would have been by a couple thousand bucks. I mean, mostly those are people who make pretty good incomes again and probably would have bought bought a home otherwise. And then, you know, they're spending billions of dollars on social housing. So there are going to be people who find homes who wouldn't have otherwise, you know, uh, it's a $40,000 subsidy, I think, each on 100,000 homes. So, Absolutely. There are going to be low income families who, who find a home who, you know, wouldn't have found as good of a home at as low of a price. Otherwise, it, it's not going to be everybody. But, you know, there is some help in the budget. What did you think of their commitment to build more homes? Yeah, again, that, that's the idea of social housing help. There are some people who need social housing. If you've got a, a family in distress, maybe because of domestic violence, uh, if there's a uh, you know, some kind of substance abuse or other social problem where supervision is required, then social housing makes a lot of sense. In my view, the real issue is housing's too expensive and you have a lot of households who don't make enough money to afford a home. So I would focus on getting housing built uh, by the government or better by the private sector and focus the government's assistance to the lowest income households who are really struggling to make rent. All right. Well, thanks very much for your time on that today. 
My pleasure. Thank you. Thomas Davidoff the, from the UBC Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate breaking down the housing affordability parts of the federal budget yesterday. So the tax savings account is an interesting one. So it's like a TFSA. Uh, instead, your money can go in there and be untaxed, and it is untaxed when it comes out to be used as a down payment for a home, which is a little different than some of the other things that are currently set up for that. So you can save money uh, towards buying a house, putting a down payment down through these new savings accounts that they're going to be setting up. But what other things in there do you think they could have, should have, would have done? What would you like to have seen? Let me know. Simi at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, here's a question for you. What is an indictable offense? Well, an indictable offense is theft over $5,000. It's breaking and entering, aggravated sexual assault, serious crimes, things like that. So why are we bringing this up? Because up until this week, if you were a local politician convicted of an indictable offense, there was actually no way to remove you from office. Newly proposed legislation aims to change that, but is it too narrow, perhaps? Let's talk more about that. Nathan Cullen joins us now, the Minister of Municipal Affairs. Thank you for being here. Of course, my pleasure. Now, first off, tell me about this legislation. What does it do? It does two things. Um, it For anyone sitting on municipal council regional district who is charged with an indictable offense you started to list them these are the this is not jaywalking serious crimes they um under current rules they can even when charged with that serious crime uh can choose to stay on council this has two effects it it can really disrupt a council as you probably know and they have a hard time getting their work done for the people they represent it also lowers public confidence in our municipal system so the first change we're bringing in is that when charged with an indictable offense, uh, someone is removed from council, not, not voted, it's just removed. Um, it's with pay, it's not meant to be punishment because you're innocent until proven guilty under our laws. The second tool is if someone is charged and then convicted of one of these offenses, we are changing it so that you don't wait until they're sentenced, which can take weeks or months. They are effectively removed from council again not a vote at council, not a motion. They're simply off the municipal council. That's it. They're done. And um, we think this is something, well, we know the leaders of BC municipalities have been asking for this for a few years now, and uh, we're happy to join with them in getting this law introduced and hopefully passed. Okay, so this is for, as we said, the serious things of indictable offenses. But what about the mm-hmm. things that are not indictable offenses that still cause a lot of those same issues, though, that you talked about, that distraction on council? Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's. It's, this is a serious thing. This is not a, a casual thing when you take somebody who is duly elected to office and talk about how to remove them from office, right? So for those uh, people who get charged with less serious crimes, and I should say the number of cases of serious charges that, that fall upon municipal leaders is very rare, but it happens, uh, unfortunately. On, on, on lesser charges um, that, you know, could could range from a whole variety of things that that becomes much more a I suppose a political question between the voters and that that person that mayor or that councillor as to whether they stay on and how they stay on but we we have to be a bit like I said prudent about this because we we respect the democratic process and we as the provincial government 
work in partnership with our UBCM, our Union of BC Municipalities colleagues, to make sure that we have rules in place that protect the integrity of councils, keep public faith, but don't interfere beyond that because that is a, a question for voters. If someone has been charged and, and maybe even sentenced to a lower uh, crime it, and then present themselves again to run for office, well, then that's up to the voters to decide and mix that into all the factors in terms of whether to vote for them or not. Right. But if there's somebody charged with a lesser offense, not an indictable mm-hmm. offense, that is mm-hmm. still sitting on council, is there no mechanism mm-hmm. for council to say we need to review that person's position or allow council to vote on whether that person should stay there? That's a good question. Um, my, my quick answer is I'm not sure. Um, I'd have to look in to see if there's, there's ways councils can um, have someone stand down uh, when uh, charged with a with a lesser crime. There's There's been cases where the councillor just chooses or the mayor chooses to do that because they see it as a distraction. It's very hard to get to work, um, depending on the nature of the charge. Again, I mean, some of the, some people will, will say, say, you know, some tax charge from 15 years ago. And you could say, well, that's bad. Uh, does it distract? I don't know. I, I suppose up to council. But um, that's something I'll have to look into and talk to UBCM about to see if there's any other changes that we want to make. Um, that'll be in the debate, I imagine, when we get it started a little later in this month in the legislature to see, because this is one of those bills you bring in, and immediately it's the, well, what about, and what about, and what about, right. and it's good, right? You want to walk it through <clears throat> real-life situations to say, it, it, for sure, this is, is this going to make things better? I think it will. Could, could we improve it? There, there might be aspects to it. Um, and then once we, if we pass the law, once it's applied, I'm sure there'll be instances in the future where we say, oh, we, we, no one imagined this scenario. What do we do about this? Right, because clearly there's a lot of interest in this. I've, I've had emails mm-hmm. on this from people because, because of real-life examples of what yeah. we have seen happen yeah. at that local level. So you are open to perhaps changing some of this. Well, you always, you know, you don't sacrifice good looking for perfect. So you bring in, and this is, we did this carefully, right? We were, did this with deep consultation. We also, of course, work with the attorney general's office to make sure it's everything we're doing is completely constitutional and legal. And it is. Um, but if there, you know, I'm going to go speak with municipal leaders right now this morning in Richmond. And, and we're hearing from a lot of municipal leaders and a lot of people through media and just directly with there is a, a strong interest because people want to have faith that when someone is elected and goes on council and something happens, serious things happen, what happens next? Mm-hmm. We remember the incident in Toronto with the mayor of Toronto, and it was just incredibly serious things going on. And the entire city council of Toronto was handcuffed and distracted, massively distracted from their work for weeks and months. And the public look at that and say, what's going on? Like, really? You, you can't. You can't suspend or fire this person. And so that's some of the changes we're bringing in. Okay, so to be clear, though, if you have a conviction, you can still run for election. If you have been convicted and serve your time, um, that all, all of that happening within an, uh, an election municipal cycle would be a little tricky because most of the sentencing is more than a, a year or two. But okay, try to imagine that someone sits on council, they get convicted of an indictable, a serious offense, they are charged and sentenced and serve their time, well, then society says you've served your time. They could offer themselves. I think the one exception might be uh, election law offenses. If you were uh, charged and found guilty of breaking election acts, I know this applies provincially and federally, uh, I think you might be banned from running ever again because Mm -hmm. the law you broke (laughs) directly uh, impugns you on your ability to stand for free and fair elections. But 
Um, yes, it, it technically, but I think the likelihood of that scenario you're talking about, um, I just, I, it'd be hard for me to imagine that timing right. working, never mind the voters looking at somebody and saying, wait, you were charged while on council with an indictable offense. And now you want my vote again? Well, that's a conversation between the voters and that candidate. Exactly. That's the beauty of democracy. Well, I look forward to the debate on this one. Thank you so much for your time. Me too. Thank you. Appreciate that. Nathan Collin, Minister of Municipal Affairs, talking about the new proposed legislation that will say if you are charged with an indictable offense, then and you're sitting on council somewhere in BC, then you automatically are going to be removed from council temporarily until that is resolved. Not without pay, you still get your pay. And if you're convicted, then you're automatically booted off council. That's a big change if you want to weigh in. Simi at cknw.com.